Welcome to the DevOps Sauna podcast. I am Lauri and I run our marketing at Efficode. In our series, Block It Out Loud, we dive into our more popular blog posts, giving you the chance to enjoy this content in audio format. You can find the link to the original blog post in the show notes. Enjoy! Migrating to a new DevOps tool. Important lessons from the real world. Are you migrating to new DevOps tools and facing challenges? Even if you aren't today, you may one day. We've gathered the most useful lessons, learned the hard way and the easy way, with plenty of real-world examples along the way, and turned them into actionable advice. There are fantastic all-in-one options available today, like GitHub, GitLab, and Atlassian. But like many, perhaps you feel the whole migration issue is a bit difficult to wrap your head around. Some of the most confusing parts can be what it takes, how to do it, and where to even begin. Here at Efficode, we've started to notice a big shift in customer views. For example, 10 years ago, when we started our Efficode root platform, we had to explain why you would even want to do DevOps in the first place. And five years ago, we had to explain why you should centralize your DevOps tooling. In this episode, we're here to talk to you about how to centralize your tooling and share eight valuable things to keep in mind. After over 15 years of doing DevOps, we've realized that not everyone understands how hard it is to switch between one CI to another. We want to give you a better understanding of how to save time and effort when migrating and avoid some of the most common pitfalls. Our goal here is not to give complete answers, but rather tell you the questions your organization should ask. The unknown unknowns, what you need to know, and how to know what you don't know. Keep listening for the right questions and the contingencies to plan for a smooth and successful migration. So first, let's talk about managing change properly. Migrations come with technical challenges, but the migrations never fail due to these. They fail due to people and culture. Many people think it's just a set of tools, but the key problem is managing change. Change management is at the core of every company's culture. Some just do it better than others. So, why is this so important? Well, let's use a real-life example, like moving your version control system, GitHub Enterprise, from on-premise to cloud. This is one of the most simple migrations you can make. You've done everything. Nothing procedurally changes for you, the user. Some parts actually happen easier than you might think, and you won't have to worry about your migrated setups. However, every GitHub user has to change one thing in their environment, the URL of the repository. All CI slash CD jobs also have this URL. So what do you do now? Maybe rewrite DevOps pipeline logic to support this? Yes, that can be done, as we have. But what about the hash checks for SSH authentications? Yes. You would think they work, but alas, no. You need to go prove those manually. This leads to a lot of guiding and pushing the teams. There will probably be discussions like who pays for the lost time, or we missed an important milestone, and so on. You have accrued much bad faith in the organization as you failed in managing one simple update that required your users to act. All this was just from migrating Git repositories. How do you think people who use Jira feel when you want to move them to GitLab? Here's a tip. When making migrations, map out the integration points so you have a list of affected systems with the URL of the repository to be updated. 
To solve this, we usually give our customers the following advice. Assemble all stakeholders and inform them well before the migration to provide guidance and business support. The senior staff can explain the why of the migration. Here are some more helpful tips. Continuous communication is key throughout, even after the post-maintenance phase. Business support requires understanding the incentives. Migration should be a well-built business case with clear priorities. For example, if your manager asks, what do we save with this? You should be able to actually answer that question. We made a calculator for estimating savings. The calculator is based on EffiCode's experience and EffiCode's root solution, but it gives a pretty good view of the stakes. These discussions can be brutal, and it's sometimes easier to have an external company doing the migration so you don't have to shoulder the responsibility alone. We have seen companies sometimes not telling their staff and apologizing when things go wrong, thinking it's just as effective. However, this is not the best way to communicate with companies, and less transparency usually leads to worse outcomes. If it took you longer to arrange the needed meetings than it takes for you to say sorry to those stakeholders, it's most probably not worth it. On to our next topic, which is the fact that people don't like change. Now that we've talked about organizational culture shocks, let's talk about how the individuals are affected. Strong influence in an organization pose a challenge. These are usually power users of these tools who hold strong technical and or social positions in the organization. They're in love with the tools they use and maintain, and thus see no reason to replace the tools they've invested so much time in to set up just right. You have to make it worth their time to learn the new tools and make their previous experiences count in relation to it. You need to convert them into advocates and change agents. Here are some tips on how to do this. First, figure out who these people are immediately. Then, involve them in the earliest phases. Also, show them how to solve existing problems with the new tool. And lastly, ask for their advice on where to expand the migration next. This is a very effective way of recruiting them along to advocate for the new tool to the teams. If they understand it, they will embrace the migration and not be afraid of the change. Instead, they become your best ambassadors in the migration. The fear of change can often be mitigated by training and by having discussions with the existing users of the tools. Here's another tip. Get the power users involved in the decision-making process so they have a chance to explain their views. Here's an example of winning over a customer through discussion and education. One of our customers was very skeptical about whether we could help them in their work and in hosting their tooling. We discussed removing part of their workload, but they thought it was a very low amount of work for them. We went through how the new tool, Jenkins, works and how they have to check every plugin. If it breaks during the night, they have to wake up and make it work again. We went through the system and the additional amount of workload they had to do every day to keep the system running. What they really wanted was to make a better test architecture for their system instead of daily firefighting and fixing. We discussed how we've previously solved these problems. After that, they asked if we could take a few of their other systems to maintain as well, so they could instead focus on creating and writing code. Being heard was the key step to help them realize where they were before. Next on our list to discuss is that we need to focus on the right questions. We have found our ambassadors and our culture is warming up towards migration. We should be good to go, right? So let's tackle those pesky technical issues. 
Well, not yet. We need to have a clear plan. First, we must answer the five questions of migrations that will define our success. This is to get everyone on the same page about the migration goals. We do the same as in software projects. We need to stop and see that everyone understands why we are doing this and what we're working towards. Here are some questions to ask during the migration planning. What kind of migration are we planning? What data are we expected to migrate? Are we expecting fully hands-off migration for developers, or do we expect them to do a lot of change themselves? Are we migrating to another instance of the same tool, or are we migrating to a completely new tool? If it's a new tool, what are we expecting to change in the current ways of working? So now, let's talk about KPIs. We need to figure out our KPIs for a successful migration. The most important aspect of KPIs is to know when you've succeeded. Is it when all users have been migrated? Is it when all the teams are satisfied with the new tools? Or is the success measured as faster cycle times or lower costs? When you've answered these, you can then ask about the composition of the migration team that's accountable to reach these KPIs. The hardest part of teamwork is to get everyone on the same page. So when you set KPIs, think about how they'll affect the different stakeholders. If you're going for the highest quality, choose KPIs that affect the quality of migration. These can include the number of support tickets, with the target being zero, the amount of work required from end users, which should be minimal, the impact on business, and the usability of the new system, along with a user satisfaction survey. If you're going for lowest cost, use KPIs that measure the length of the project, the feature parity with the previous system in use, and tickets that are open after two weeks of migrating. These affect what the migration team will optimize. Now, what will the migration team be accountable for? Since you know what our migration team will prioritize, it's time to ask, what should the teams be required to do? You can map this based on your KPIs. If you're going for lowest cost, the manual work required will be more than if you spend six months developing tools to migrate everyone in one go. So think hard about what you can expect from your teams. Also, how do the teams migrate to the new environment? We often see big-time investments in tasks that the teams could do very easily themselves, and it might even make sense for them to do. For example, they can clean up old clutter when they move the new CI slash CD jobs to the new environment. It usually doesn't make sense to migrate something that won't be used, especially if it never even worked as a team expected in the first place. But sometimes teams want their CI slash CD to be moved in one go. They don't want to mess with a thing that works. So ask yourselves how to reward and build pressure for teams to migrate. For example, this service will close in six months is always a valid stick, but is it effective in our organization? I have seen many organizations that inform their users that service will be terminated, but because the people know that the termination won't happen, people continue using the same old solutions. The teams may even be using environments that were supposed to be killed decades ago. If you want people to feel the pain of using deprecated environments, move the cost to the team still using them. Usually at that point, the team migrates surprisingly quickly to a new system, but also remember that every organization is different. Okay, so let's say you have your KPIs, requirements, and the specifications of migration, but you still have the hardest question to tackle. 
one that you're most likely not able to answer by yourself, and your superior wants to avoid like the plague. But if you don't solve it, you will throw sand on your ice slide. The dreaded question is, how do we distribute the costs? You have the direct cost of migration, like licenses and work spent on it, that's clear. But what about the indirect costs and opportunity costs? Both will affect the above, and this is why the specification was created in the first place. This is needed to prevent someone from blocking the migration. You need to have a clear plan on how to inform any team that this project needs to happen. Or you have to allocate the needed costs to the migration team if delays happen due to these costs. Who will pay for the precious development time you didn't do while migrating? There should be a clear answer, and it needs to be supported by the whole management team, or at least your sponsor needs to understand this question is coming their way. By informing everyone before they have a chance to ask the question, your stakeholders will have a better impression of you. Now, here is an example of a full migration. In a successful migration I made a few years ago, the customer said, we want a full migration so we don't have to do anything. And that's what we did. We prepared scripts to update the Git repositories with new URLs. We made artifactory URL redirects automatically, replaced with new safe ones. We made the migration of jobs from on-premise CI slash CD to the cloud, tested them, and prepared them to run as they did previously, and also prepared their Jira and Confluence migration from Oracle databases to Postgres. Plus, while we were at it, we moved the whole infrastructure to AWS. The cost of this work was much bigger than the customer expected as a lot of environment-specific code had to be rewritten to provide URL redirects to prevent things from breaking, but at the same time convert all traffic from the old server address and port to the new DNS name of the service. It was a small customer, so we expected that they didn't have the time. But after listening to the feedback on what went wrong, they said, we could have changed those URLs ourselves. It would have been very fast for our developers as part of their normal work. So. By failing to specify the what will the teams do, we ended up doing far more work than the customer expected. Today, they're still a happy customer with trust in us, but we learned our lesson. We now always guide our customers to specify the most important parts that they want us to solve for them, so they also have a budget for these. Just to recap our questions for the migration. What kind of migration are we planning? What are the KPIs for a successful migration? What will the migration team be accountable for? What exactly do we want the teams to migrate? Are there any incentives for or against the migration? And lastly, how do we distribute all three of the costs, direct, indirect, and opportunity costs? Now it's time to talk about the fact that you need to drastically reconfigure. Whenever you change the tool you're using, the configurations can drastically change. The tools work in very different ways. So in the planning phase, always define what can we lose. Not everything will be easy to implement again. You can usually implement many of the features, but it may require lots of work compared to the benefit of that feature. For example, you usually can't replicate permission levels exactly, as some tools have far more fine-grained permission levels and roles than others. You have to map which permissions go where and what permissions teams need by default all beforehand. With CI slash CD, there is no one way to build or deploy in any organizations I've come across. 
I've even seen organizations that offer ready-made deployment jobs but still see difference between teams. So here's a tip. Write a general overview of what you have. Figure out how many of those jobs are defined with code and how many are defined with a UI, if the tool supports UI configuration of a job, that is. It's most likely that you're migrating to a tool that only supports as a code, or you want to migrate all jobs to code. So it's important to figure out how many of these are about just switching the syntax and where you need to teach the team completely new ways of working, as they need to learn that the CI slash CD belongs to the repository. Be sure to prepare good articles for the top languages and use cases with the ambassadors you have, and get ready for the yet unknown challenges of mass migration, where you will learn how even the simplest configuration change can face turbulent waters. Here's an example of running a Jenkins file parser on GitLab. Imagine this scenario. You have everything in Jenkins jobs, and you'll move to GitLab using Jenkins file parser to have GitLab run the Jenkins files on the same servers with the same configuration. Things will still break, as stuff won't work for every situation. For example, a lot of jobs in history were built by sending binary to Jenkins master. If such a binary deployment is in use, and you don't have the binary anywhere else, the future setup with GitLab will be incredibly hard to implement. This is due to the different way binaries move between jobs. As a result, some jobs require a complete overhaul. If they're a chain of jobs that work together, they would need to be re-engineered into one pipeline, which might prove challenging since there are usually reasons for the original design. You should learn how to work with the new tools first and then reflect on what should be done rather than going overboard during a migration. You won't have to cover all the scenarios, so rather focus on the masses instead of trying to cover all the complex scenarios. You usually want to make sure 80% of people will have a good time. As for the rest, well, that's why you did the first three steps, so you can sail through the murky waters without drowning. Our top tip for this is don't go overboard. Just make general assumptions and prepare to fix the rest after the migration. Here's a big question to consider. Should you automate or just guide people? You've now mapped out the differences between tools and have procured the tools for your organization. Now it's time to tackle the next big question, how much to automate and how much to guide people. The guiding principle should be how to impact the work correctly. So ask the following questions. What data or functionality do you need to bring to the new system with you? What data or functionality can you consider as an option or additional goal? Lastly, which new features do you enable in the new tool by default? And were these features in the old environment? Now that you know what needs to be done and who's doing it, it's time to get started with the actual implementation backlog. What you want to automate and what you want to establish guidelines for depends on how widely used the feature in the tool is and also how much time it would take the teams to take it into use. You should also think if there are regulations that would require those features to be in place. In a 6,000 developer organization, even the smallest automation can save a massive number of hours, such as not breaking URLs and backward compatibility, or having CI pipelines automatically have certain things implemented in them. The larger you can go, the more time you'll save. For example, Changing a Git URL in that 6,000 developer organization might be a 10-minute job, but then it takes 60,000 minutes for the employees, 
theoretically leading to an extra work of 1,000 hours. The truth is, most likely it's done while thinking of another task or while still reading morning emails, but just 10% of those hours in productivity would be 100 hours of lost work time. Therefore, automating things that affect everyone is usually the smart bet. Branching strategies and merging strategies in Git are another thing that would directly affect your employees. So, you would not like to use the wrong ones in every project. Therefore, you have to consider how the automation will affect the end user, where and who would use the built automation, and how to make sure the correct settings get replicated to projects. It's also very important to understand what you can automate from the CI slash CD agent runner or action. We recommend you ask, what kind of customization do we allow? How do we enable it? Who will manage it in the future? Where is the point when the teams have maximum benefits, but for example, not all regulations have to be in place yet? Do we host these for the teams or do the teams host themselves? We usually recommend that the expertise of hosting these should be purchased from a professional server, as the agent slash runner slash actions are often a source of surprises. This means changing these at all during migration almost always leads to challenges. Here's an example. On Windows using C Sharp, you can authenticate with the AD permissions to the SQL Server database. For this, the server needs to be connected to AD with hard-to-automate redeployments and have access to said credentials, leading to security concerns about who has access to the agent slash runner slash actions. These are things that can be sorted out and worked through with the team beforehand. Perhaps the agent slash runner slash actions need to stay and be maintained manually by the team during the migration, rather than moving to an auto-scaling and auto-maintained cloud environment due to the complexities involved. Don't try to fix these pools during migration because it is impossible. Aim to keep the system as similar as possible for the first mass migrations and concentrate on them after. It takes additional work, but it saves time overall. Sometimes we think that automation has solved our issues, but in reality, things are never so straightforward. Consider this. We have all our environments containerized and documented already, so why would we need a care? This likely means you have a chance of moving to a centrally managed agent platform, like running things in a unified Kubernetes environment for all teams. But this also means that networking still needs to be planned and prepared. It's risky to convert things to Kubernetes without mapping the old environment requirements, even if they were dockerized. If you go to centralized run Kubernetes agent pools, make sure to deploy them to the cloud when possible. Hosting an on-premises Kubernetes for the sake of build and deployment is very expensive, and you can't build similar scaling as in the cloud. To clean up the cost and faultiness within the environment, you constantly want to ramp down the underlying infrastructure. Automation is your friend, but automating everything is not always worth it. Focus on the critical things that we specified before. Think, will our users really need this, or could they manage this themselves? If you still feel it's needed, definitely look into automating it. Moving on to our next topic, consider how you migrate artifacts. Swapping an artifact management software sounds like an easy task at first, but migrating those binaries is often a lot of work due to many different interconnected things. You have to map which repository types you have in use, if any. Many CI slash CDs allow you to use their own disk for these temporarily. This often leads to problems in migration due to the binary not being stored how you expected it to be. 
and if you, for example, move from static agents to dynamic, that destroys the disk between every build to keep the clutter from forming up, and you could be in trouble. This means that migrating these binaries is risky. It's not enough to check that the new systems support XYZ technologies, but rather, does it also support remotes and virtuals? This means that you can easily build a remote repository connection, for example, to npm.org and connect it to your other repositories via virtual repositories. Here are some great questions to ask yourself. How about the layouts of binaries? These are also customizable in many tools. Have you been using releases in the binary system? How will you use those in the future system? There are surprisingly many things to figure out before starting the migration and if the tool supports the necessary features. So, now let's talk about URL changes. Any changes you make to the binary URL or where it deploys will affect all of the jobs that use the binary repository you've defined. Changing the URL will affect all jobs using said binary. This means we need to search and replace URLs or magically map them in proxies to make sure the binaries can be accessed as before. In the past, our team has had a lot of trouble removing ports and adding HTTPs to the artifacts as those are standard security features to any current day system. But enforcing them so that CI slash CD still keeps working is not easy. Now what about your DevSecOps pipelines? How do they integrate to the new tool? For example, JFrog X-Ray only works with JFrog Artifactory, which means you now need to swap your DevSecOps tools for another. So it's no longer about changing one tool, but many tools. While working on that, you also need to figure out what remote repositories you should offer, as many teams might be using public internet directly for various reasons. So you should aim to offer them low latency availability from your binary management system. Now this brings us to binary storages. Binary storage is not just fancier shared disks. They have a lot of amazing features that could become an issue if you, for example, want to migrate to GitLab completely as many of the features are not yet available in the tool itself. There are options for this, such as archiving the old stuff to save costs, and just fixing things when problems arise, or moving to the new system while keeping the old one, starting to use the new features bit by bit and seeing which ones you still need. Depending on the needed features, you may be able to do some other magic to get rid of the pricey system you've been hosting for the developers. An example, opting for a Docker remote proxy. One of our customers decided to move everything to GitLab and remove all other solutions from their pipelines. This meant extensive research on how to offer binaries from GitLab and restrictions. We concluded that their teams were heavy users of Docker and needed a Docker proxy. Our solution was to follow GitLab's guidance and have a Docker remote proxy for Docker Hub to use the images with GitLab without paying the license for the old system. Doing this, they made small savings on their DevOps costs. I can't really call it a success as the savings were very small compared to the cost of the project to migrate the binary management to GitLab only. It'll take them years to save the money back from this change. This is why I often suggest keeping the binary management software and maybe just moving it to the cloud or integrating it to S3 buckets or comparable to have cheap disks for it. Also, moving to a more optimized architecture for your binary management. Costs can be lowered more easily in other areas than binary management licenses, which cost quite little due to competition in that area.
Now let's turn our focus to legacy pipelines. You're now finally ready to start thinking of moving your legacy to new systems and making the team work with the new tools. You've gotten through the politics and the changes to the ways of working and are finally ready to ask, how do we move the old tools to the new system? We often hear about teams moving from Jenkins or TeamCity to GitLab or GitHub due to the single platform benefits. They're looking for silver bullets for this. The first thing we check with them is, are you using Jenkins files or TeamCity YAML? The answer is typically, some of our teams are. This means we have handmade click ops jobs that we would need to rewrite to any of these tools. The jobs were made when CI as a code was still a prominent concept, but not yet implemented. Therefore, the handmade artisan pipelines need to be completely rewritten since there's no easy way to migrate them to the pipeline model. The next step is to prepare a list of what you need to change in the jobs to make them work, what the new syntax looks like, and how Maven, NPM, NuGet, or other package managers work in the new tool. You need to make demos, examples, and documentation for the team during the migration. This will help them rewrite and fix their jobs when something starts going wrong. You may be able to replatform some jobs by building hacks, such as running a Jenkins core in an agent that enables you to run Jenkins files in a GitLab runner. It's mostly only usable to get masses migrated and should be thought of as a temporary solution to encourage teams to rewrite the job. Rewriting is needed for the SAST and DAST capap. Rewriting is needed for the SAST and DAST capability enablement. And if you don't build such parts into the job, why are you replatforming everything? If you're not trying to benefit from new parts of the DevOps community's accomplishments, what exactly are you trying to achieve? Let's return back to the beginning of this episode. If you have no intention of replatforming, do you really have a business case? Or are you just changing due to the need for change? Migrating tools often involves a need to replatform and refactor for the new features, but also because none of the tools use similar syntax, so migrating to and out of the product is very expensive work. That's why many companies shy away from it. The end result is usually worth it. After the migration, you can easily start moving people across tools and products as teams are working in the same tools and processes. When migrating, you need to plan how to manage and help in exceptions, plus how to monitor the way forward and keep the systems up and running for your teams. Usually migrations require very strict project management and also the monitoring of who's still running their jobs and why, and what do we need to solve? Some teams will say that a feature is missing or the way it's implemented is a blocker for them. There are many ways to build a pipeline and none of them should be writing a script with 400 lines of code just to solve a process problem. Don't try to solve everything with the CI slash CD, but rather by building a culture of trust. If you can't trust your work and steps, stop and look at what you're working on and how. If you're not ready to trust your pipelines and ways of working, what can you trust in your DevOps? You can start by discussing the feature with the team and ask the question, why? Why are we not trusting our tests? And why does this need human interaction? You should assert that the team should be trusted. If not, you're not doing DevOps. If you are doing CI slash CD to speed up deployments, let those teams stay in that tool. They won't change regardless of what tools you set them up with. Move the Git repository and leave the CI slash CD there. Changing the build tool for the sake of changing the team rarely works. 
but if they are ready to change and embrace the trust you show them, it's time to trust them because they will manage. For our last topic, before some closing remarks, I want you to know that you need new dashboards and views. First of all, forget about migrating your dashboard and views. They won't work in the new tool as they did in the old one. You should remake them to fit the new tool. And during the migration, consider things like, do we really need this dashboard that shows green or red? Or can we make it into something more usable for remote working? Dashboards can only show what you tell them to show with the data that you give them. You can't show a view of data that you don't have. Your team needs to implement the data flows, so consider why you want each dashboard. Dashboards are a two-edged sword. If your teams focus on improving the dashboard's numbers, you risk having the dashboard making decisions for you. For example, with one customer, we started to measure releases in JIRA. Shortly after, we implemented automatic release creation and closing for the team based on tickets moved to done in a period, enabling them to show their releases in the metric without actually having to use the feature. This boosted the metric tenfold, but it didn't really solve anything for the team. Another bad thing about dashboards is that if the team doesn't care about the dashboard, they won't look at it. So instead of turning everything into a dashboard, try to stop and think, what do we really need? And what are we trying to accomplish with this? Data is also just as good as your parsing for it, it's just like the saying, garbage in, garbage out. Anytime you make a dashboard quickly with data, you might be leading your team astray. For example, I've seen customers do A-B testing where they mixed up sessions with users, thus ruining the tests with massive amounts of data points rather than using selective grouping to determine if it was a useful feature or not. Compliance and application lifecycle metrics often span across teams, which is a whole other area for optimization. We normally look into these at each phase of migration, from pre-planning to sustainability. To measure the success of your migration, don't use traditional software development lifecycle metrics. They are deceitful so long as your coverage is not there. You should use metrics that measure adoption. For example, some of our customers thought they were doing well in terms of DevOps tooling, but when we started researching their DevOps usage, they only had the version control part in use in the stack. So they were barely doing DevOps and were focusing on the wrong things to push their tooling forward. However, their metrics told them they were doing well, that they were using the tool, which was technically true, but you need to use metrics to support the team and ways of working in the tool, not the product usage. So here are a few parting words. Working on this episode has been a fun experience of trying to summarize the ever-eluding migration of dreams. So here's some final advice. It may not be pretty. I've managed to do fantastic migrations a few times, but I would say that this is a rare occasion. They usually get very messy, even with all the knowledge I've gathered over years of doing DevOps, even with all the knowledge I've gathered from Effie Code. Every time there's a surprise waiting for you behind the requirements management process, which you're there fixing alone at 1 a.m. on Saturday night, knowing that testing starts tomorrow morning, and if it's not ready by 10 a.m., the whole migration gets postponed and you have to go through the last 36 hours of hell again. So you keep pushing, hoping to solve it. Also, don't be afraid of failure. Sometimes you succeed, more often you fail. When migrating, don't be afraid of failure. Embrace the learnings of it and prepare better for the next time. And try to avoid having over 40-hour migration days. They're not healthy or productive. Agree with a coworker, have good handovers, and aim to have a team with fresh minds. 
to close out this episode, I want to tell you about a migration that went well. We went to the meeting and the customers said they were migrating in the next month. It needed to go well, as the old provider would stop supporting the software in one and a half months. We made a plan for the product, which we know well, prepared the environments and data migrations, and made sure everything was prepared. We ran a multitude of test migrations and checked that everything went well. On our go-live day, we began the migration, and the DNS was migrated as agreed. But the TTL was set to one hour, leading to the migration lasting one and a half hours due to an oversight in the DNS. There were no other problems whatsoever, and we were in production as intended. Even after all the experience and training, one oversight can triple such a project. It went well, and we were happy to be in production. Just remember, enjoy the stressful trip, or at least try to and celebrate the success. I'll now head for a beer and celebrate the migration of this data from our heads to this episode. That was it. Now we would love to hear from you about the further topics we should feature in this series. Our repertoire ranges from DevOps, Agile and Cloud Native to usability, accessibility and service design. Please reach out to us via Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook and let us know what themes our experts should cover. Until then, take care of yourself and let's build the future of software development together.